listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. So this evening we are marking a day called the Baptism of the Lord, which is to be observed on the first Sunday after the Feast of Epiphany. Now, technically, the first Sunday after the Feast of Epiphany was last Sunday, the 7th of January, because Epiphany actually falls on the 6th. So the liturgical purists would have had us hold an extra service last Saturday night to celebrate Epiphany, and then on Sunday night, last Sunday, do the baptism of the Lord. So I have just exposed myself as less than a purist, as I think it's much better to mark these important feast days on successive Sundays, one after another. And so we are. Now the thinking behind having us read this gospel story at this point in the calendar after Epiphany does make real sense. We've now spent a couple of weeks dealing with the infancy narratives, the Christmas and Epiphany stories from Luke and from Matthew. And now we hit the fast-forward button, and we land at the beginning of Jesus' adult ministry sometime around the age of 30. The story of the baptism is actually the closest thing to a birth story that Mark will give us in his gospel. In his account, Jesus appears at the Jordan, is baptized by John, and then he sees the heavens torn apart, the Spirit descending like a dove, and he hears a voice from the heavens saying to him, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. And then following this, Mark tells us that the Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness where Jesus spent 40 days alone. Now, there's a few things I want you to notice in this account. First of all, the vision of the descending dove and the voice from the heavens are quite clearly presented here as private experiences. Jesus hears this voice. He saw the heavens opened. It seems that this is a moment where, at least in a particular way in Mark's view, Jesus receives real clarity about who he is and what his vocation is to be. Now, there's a couple of other real distinctives, though, in Mark's version of this story of the baptism. He uses a very strong verb. He says that the heavens are torn apart. Both Matthew and Luke, the heavens are simply opened. And then, as soon as Jesus has come out of the river, the Spirit, in Mark's words, drove him out into the wilderness. It's another very strong verb. And again, it, it contrasts with the much gentler ones used by Matthew and Luke, where the Spirit led him into the wilderness. It's so typical 
of Mark's style as a storyteller in that he's constantly urgent. It's all hurried. It's very intense. His language is always intense. The novelist Reynolds Price notes how Mark's gospel, quote, reels out its jerky, very peculiar story at full tilt speed and with what seems the first words at hand, a small and modest vocabulary. Mark's absolute favorite word is immediately. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He uses it no less than 27 times in his rather compact gospel account. Immediately he's here. Immediately they're there. I think that Mark's intent in using this strong imagery of the heavens being torn open and the Spirit driving Jesus immediately into the wilderness... I think Mark's intent is to emphasize just how earth-shaking and life-defining is this moment of beginning in Jesus' life and ministry. For Mark, it truly is the process through which Jesus is birthed, birthed into his vocation, into his calling. He's baptized. He receives this revelation and affirmation as the beloved Son of God and then is driven into the wilderness for those 40 days where, typical of his economy of words, Mark says only that he was tempted by Satan, was with the wild beasts, and that the angels waited on him. It is to Matthew and to Luke to record those conversations in the temptations between Jesus and the Satan. Mark doesn't provide that. Now, the lectionary actually would have had us stop two verses earlier than what we heard read aloud tonight. It would have had us leave out this material about the 40 days in the wilderness Leave it until the first Sunday of Lent. We will return to this story then. But I don't think that you can separate the baptism from the wilderness sojourn, particularly not when you're seeing it through Mark's eyes. The one folds absolutely and clearly immediately into the other. And though Mark says so little about the wilderness time, there's no question that he sees it as being enormously significant. So a year ago, right now, from this weekend, that I was slowly acclimatizing myself to a kind of wilderness, very different from the desert that Jesus sojourned into, but a wilderness all the same. And while I was not quite driven there by the Spirit, I was certainly compelled. I was at the beginning of my five-week intensive private retreat under the direction of Father Gary Thorne, spent or maybe contained or held in the context of the chapel community at the University of King's College in Halifax. It was not a baptism 
that had preceded my wilderness time, that had compelled me to go there. There was no voice booming from the heavens that had been torn apart, but I had been torn. I'd been torn by a deep personal crisis, and there were wounds and questions and scars that needed to be walked through and tended over those weeks. I was not, during that time, tempted by Satan, though I did need to contend with something that the desert fathers and mothers of the first three or four centuries called acedia, the noonday demon. It's an experience of listlessness in the middle of that kind of a, of a time of solitude, a listlessness that, that kind of verges right on the edge of hopelessness. Why bother with this discipline? What am I even doing here? I can't pray or read another word. I'm just going back to bed. That's the noonday demon. And I was surrounded by wild beasts of a sort. They came welling up from within me. They were things like anger, shame, and grief. And they needed to be tamed. And I was waited upon by angels in Greek and Gelos, messengers. And some of those angels I could even see and touch. Father Thorne was certainly one of them. The student who walked me through the writing of an Orthodox icon of Jesus, another. The members of the chapel community with whom I shared the pews three or four times every day in worship. They were all my angels. And in the end, after those weeks with the wild beasts tamed, the noonday demon banished, I knew something with huge clarity. I knew that I was broken and that I was yet numbered amongst the beloved of God. It wasn't the voice coming from torn heavens, but I knew it all the same. And for that, that double knowledge that I am broken and I am beloved, for that I am eternally grateful. You may have noticed over the years since I've been back that when I preside at the table for communion, I'm holding something in my hand. It's a rough-hewn cross that one of the students from the chapel community carved for me out of a piece of soapstone with his penknife. We were on a a chapel community retreat close to the end of my time there. I I watched Hank do it, just chipping away and making this rough-hewn cross. I didn't know it was for me. It was given to me in the car on the way to the airport by Gary Thorne. And I decided that I would hold it in my hand whenever I presided at Eucharist here because there is both a ruggedness, a brokenness to it, and a belovedness to it. Now next week, Bishop Don is going to be here. He's joining us as we celebrate adult baptism and confirmation. I do not expect 
that when Nicole is baptized that anyone will see the heavens torn open, nor do I think that any of the three who will be confirmed, Nicole and Mike and Sharon, I don't think any of the three will be immediately driven out for a 40-day sojourn in the wilderness. Were that to happen, I expect I'd have some serious explaining to do to your families and your employers. No. But what we will do next Sunday with these three people is connected to the story told tonight. There's a through line from Jesus' baptism to our baptisms. In fact, there's a through line from what Jesus does in his ministry, his actions of laying hands on people, breathing the Holy Spirit into the lives of the disciples. There's a through line from that ministry to what Bishop Don will do in the laying on of hands and the anointing of the foreheads of these three people. It is, at the very least, a through line characterized by this. But the three of them will be told ever so clearly that though they may be broken, they are numbered amongst God's beloved. And this too, when times of wilderness come, and they surely do come to all of us, whatever the cause, whatever the particular wild beasts might be, there will be angels messengers, some of whom might even be riding the pew with you this very night. For once you've accepted and embraced that you are, in fact, numbered amongst the beloved of God, even in your brokenness, you find that we've all got an investment in each other, broken and beloved. When it comes to the wilderness, the only way through is through On account of Jesus, though, none of us has to do that alone. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.